Good Sunday evening, everyone. Happy Labor Day weekend, and welcome back to Sith's Basement. Hope everyone's having a safe weekend, an enjoyable one, and we've got a lot on deck for you tonight. We have the top 20 80s comedies film-wise, also Basement Shenanigans, Q&A, and a couple of rants. So let's get this show on the road, shall we? Tonight in the basement, our two test subjects are watching Star Trek V, the absolute worst Star Trek film ever made. Yes, Nemesis pales a comparison for being the worst, although I hated that one as well. Okay, it's so bad that if it wasn't for the fact that I saw it for free opening night, I almost walked out of it immediately after the singing of Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Just a horrible watch, and it's definitely torture-worthy. Now, on with the countdown. Okay, the 80s brought us a lot of fun films, and comedy is of no exception. This is a very difficult countdown, but it's going to be fun, so... Here we go. Coming at number 20 is the Eddie Murphy comedy concert, Delirious. This is the film that came out after Trading Places in 48 Hours, where you see Eddie Murphy in concert on HBO, enjoying what it was like for him to be on stage in a non-SNL environment. It was an awakening for those of us who only knew of his SNL work and his film roles before he got the call, as this was you know, before he got the call from SNL. He was a struggling stand-up comedian in the New York comedy circuit. You get the ice cream man bit, which is always a good routine, and just flat-out greatness. Coming in at number 19 is Jim Carrey's first main movie role. We're talking about the vampire sex comedy Once Bitten from 85. When a 400-year-old countess needs the blood of a virgin to live, she preys on a teen virgin who's trying to get his girlfriend to have sex with him. This film is really a sex comedy with a vampire thrown into it. It fits the time period of sorts because sex comedy was big in the early mid-80s and this was more aimed at the young teen audience more than anything, hence PG-13 rating. All in all, it's a good watch if you want to see Jim Carrey before he had a big. Coming at number 18 is Big Business from 1988, starring Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin as two sets of twins, one from a family of wealth and one from a blue-collar background who discovered they were switched at birth from their parents and they worked together to stop the closing of the Jupiter Hollow factory. It's an enjoyable watch and up until present time, the last time Jim Abrams has worked with Bette Midler. And this was also a loose retelling of the Shakespeare play, The Comedy of Errors. So, there is that. Coming at number 17 is Spies Like Us, starring Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, and John Candy from 85. Now, if you've ever seen the TV series Chuck, and want to know what one of its influences was, here you go. When two low-level government low-level government employees think they're spies, they later find out they're decoys for a nuclear war. Now look, a lot of people give this film a lot of shit, but I will argue that the reason it's attacked is because the three leads were going up against the grain that they were a part of comedy-wise. No different than when John Belushi did Continental Divide, critics pay at that, 
and no different than when Eddie Murphy did Harlem Nights and the critics were like, oh my God, this is horrible. Look, this is a good film if you like spy comedies or the series Chuck, period. Coming at number 16 is National Lampoon's European Vacation, the first of the three vacation films on this list. Now, small spoiler here, I really didn't care for Vegas Vacation that much or the reboot from 2015 of the original Vacation, but the first three films I absolutely love. In this one, the Griswolds are back, and this time they went on vacation across Europe. Then you get into the usual crazy shit that happens with the Griswolds on vacation. Now, this film did get a lot of grief from some, as did Christmas Vacation and Vegas Vacation, for being toned down in content from the original, as well as the fact that Anthony Michael Hall and and Dana Barron didn't come back, because with this one, Anthony Michael Hall decided to do weird science, so that's why they didn't bring back Dana Barron as well. All in all, though, this is a good entry. Coming at number 15 is We're No Angels from 89. This was another Neil Jordan film that is just grossly overlooked. When two convicts escape prison and end up in a church near the Canadian border, they have to find a way to cross the border and they pose as priests. Now, I know a lot of people don't take on Lee to Sean Penn or these days Robert De Niro as well, but this is a fun movie to sit through. I saw this on Christmas break in 89 in the theaters and enjoyed it still to this day. It's one that's aged well through the years. Coming at number 14 is The Secret of My Success from 87. This was another Michael J. Fox comedy vehicle and film. And in this one, he plays a Kansas State University graduate. He goes to work in the mailroom for a distant uncle's company. Then it's a race to the top to see if a corporate takeover can happen, and it's hysterical. This was another film that Michael J. Fox did while he was still doing the TV sitcom Head Family Ties. And this was another hit for him at the box office. I still love the ending as it brings everything full circle, if you will. Not the best film Fox did, but still a good watch. Coming in at number 13 is the second Eddie Murphy concert film, Eddie Murphy Roth from 87. This was the concert film where Eddie discussed Bill Cosby, his mom's cooking, relationships, people after Rotch and Rocky, etc. This was also the film where people were ask, asked on the way into seeing the concert, you know, what was their favorite Eddie Murphy film? And what was their favorite character? Etc. This film is powered in nostalgia basically because his routine about a McDonald's hamburger hits close to home because who didn't have hamburgers with cheese, ketchup, maybe bacon or tomato, and between two slices of bread? Growing up, you know you did. All in all, just a great concert film. Coming at number 12 is Adventures in Babysitting from 87. When Chris Parker gets stood up on a date with her boyfriend, she thinks she's in for a dull night of babysitting that turns out to be Adventures through Chicago. Now, as a preface, the Disney Plus version of this film from 87 does trim out some of the stronger language that's in the theatrical cut. 
this is a decent watch. I remember seeing it in a second run theater, but also running it back when Some Eleven had video rentals. It's Christopher Columbus's directorial debut, so this predates Home Alone, and all in all, it's another loving tribute to the city of Chicago. Coming in at number 11 is History of the World Part 1 from 81. Yes, the Mel Brooks take on the Dawn of Man, the Old Testament, the Roman Empire, the Spanish Inquisition, and the French Revolution. Look, I get that a lot of people are offended by this film, but for obvious reasons. It's funny as hell. I get it, it's offensive, but damn, why the hell does humor have to be so politically correct? Mel Brooks, to his credit, never takes a knee to the cancel PC culture, and it's what I like to call an equal opportunity offender. This film isn't for the people that are easily offended. You got it? We break into the top 10 at number 10 with Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure from 89. Okay, if you really want to be technical about it, it was originally supposed to be released in 88, but issues with the initial production company going bankrupt left this film left this film on the shelf for about a year. When two seniors are about to flunk history, they get a visit from the future and get a phone booth that takes them through, uh, through time. Think Doctor Who meets 80s metal meets time travel. Why? Because Doctor Who involves the phone booth idea for time travel. It's a good comedy, and although Bogus Journey and Face the Music weren't as epic, they were solid sequels to this original film. Coming in at number 9 is Airplane from 1980. In this send-up of 70s disaster films, and what is admittedly a comedy remake of a film called Zero Ever from the 50s, this is the story of one man who tries to not only save his relationship, but manually pilot a plane when all the pilots get food poisoning. Now, neat fact about this film, because of the food poisoning issue in this film involving the pilots, in real life, it became a rule for pilots to have different meals while on a plane. So hopefully this scenario doesn't happen. This film is silly, it's sophomoric, it's offensive to some, but it's a comedy classic nevertheless. Coming in at number 8 is Major League from 89 think the Cleveland Indians as the Bad News Bears. When the owner, when the new owner of the Cleveland Indians inherits the team from her late husband, she creates a roster full of either washed up vets or young misfits for her dream move to Miami, but there's a twist to all of this as well. This film never gets old, and with Bobby Euchre doing commentary for the games, what is into love? Ball four, ball eight, ball twelve. You know, then also for the fact that this is like an adult version of the Bad News Bears. Okay, so if you will, so this is what makes the film enjoyable. Coming at number seven is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation from 89. Shitter's full. Okay, this is the one that has the Griswolds hosting Christmas and Clark's family comes over for a visit and all hell breaks loose. It's also noteworthy because you have Johnny Galecki and Juliet Lewis as Rusty and Audrey in this one. Is it a Christmas classic? Well, in time it grew to that status, but it did take time for it to happen. Not the best of the vacation series, the best is yet to come in the countdown, but it's a good film nevertheless and worth seeing. Coming in at number six is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. 
John uses love poem to the city of Chicago, where a teen who skips school with his girlfriend and best friend, they take on the city of Chicago for a day, not only by foot, but by Ferrari. It's probably one of the most quotable films of the decade. The soundtrack is very much 80s modern rock. You got John Hughes directing, solid casting, and so on. Nostalgia keeps us out of the top five. Nothing more. Number five, National Lampoon's Vacation. The original still, still stands tall as a top five staple of the 80s. When Clark Griswold wants to take his family out to Wally World in California, he opts for a road trip where a lot of shenanigans take place. From the opening song, Holiday Road, through the ending, it's just a lot of fun. Still love John Candy when his character says, Sorry folks, park's closed. The moose out front should have told you. Just an endearing film that still gets a view when I can. Coming in at number four is Back to the Future. The 85 comedy where Michael J. Fox plays Marty McFly who ends up traveling back to 1955 and ends up meeting his future parents but in a major caveat twist when he first meets his future mom. Okay, so you have the slight incest remark in it, but honestly, this film is a classic. Irony of Marty's band playing in front of a few judges in a talent show and one of them in the cameos, he realizes he says, I'm sorry, it's just too darn loud. Just a great classic that honestly had a decent trilogy, but we should all be thankful that after part three, it was over, period, as Robert Zemeckis has final rights to the franchise and will block any attempt to reboot or remake the original. Coming at number three is Ghostbusters from 84. Say what you will about the sequel. Say what you will about the remake from 2016. See what you've seen about the soon-to-be sequel, Ghostbusters Afterlife. The original is still a classic. When a group of parapsychologists open a business for catching ghosts, you get hilarity in New York City. Now, originally this was a vehicle that Dan Aykroyd saw for John Belushi and Eddie Murphy. But when Belushi died and Eddie Murphy wanted to move on, you later had Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, and Ernie Hudson thrown in there. Just really love this movie, and it never gets old at all. About the only catch to this film is that it was originally supposed to be darker than it was put to screen, but it's solid work. Coming in at number two is Diner from 82. This is the film set in 1959 Northwest Baltimore, where a group of male friends in their early 20s come together for a friend's wedding. The catch is this, if the bride-to-be can't pass the quiz on the 1959 Baltimore Colts championship team, the wedding is off. You get Kevin Bacon, Ellen Barkin, Steve Gutenberg, Daniel Stern, Mickey Rook, Tim Daly, and Paul Reiser before they hit it big, folks. This is one of my favorite films to watch in the decade, one of my favorite films of all time. If you take away the few usages of the word fuck, this film is a PG-13. And number one, it's this is Final Tap. Ain't you ask why, for Christ's sake? It's the film that some of my favorite bands deride because it hits too close to home, even though it's a fictitious film. Okay? It's the story of a fictitious rock band 
that is on its first tour of the U.S. in years. This film is fucking hysterical as shit. And the irony is that Michael McKean, Christopher Guest, and Harry Shearer are all trained musicians, so you're not seeing a lot of stunt double work on stage with the musicians at all. One of the most quotable films of all time, an all-time favorite, and by the way, why not stop at 10? Well, please go to 11. And there you go, the top 20 comedy films of all time. Now, let's hit up the Q&A machine, machine, shall we? You can reach me at Q&A on Twitter at TrueSithDan74. Question went Sith. Before COVID, Doc McGee said that all former surviving members of KISS had been approached about making an appearance on the farewell tour. What do you think the odds of this actually happening? Okay, realistically, I don't, because of something else Doc said in that interview. There's an issue with having two spacemen and two captain on stage at the same time. Or two Ace Freelies and two Peter Chris's should be blunt. You also have the issue of Vinnie Vincent. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, he did make an appearance in Tennessee with Gene as far as promoting the vault goes, but Paul, but Paul flat out refuses to discuss him. It's possible to possibly see Ace, Peter, and Bruce with the right situation, you know, get them all tuned up, practices the whole nine yards, get them into a contract for a final appearance. But Vinnie Vincent, you gotta be kidding me, dude. Okay, if they keep towing the line that, oh, from the start of the tour, Ace and Peter are more than welcome to play a sec with us, then you have that bait and switch that maybe when the tour resumes and you go to one of their shows, Ace and Peter will show up. Okay, question two. Seth, any good 80s artists electronic-wise that are diamonds in the rough? Yeah, actually look up the art of noise. You talk about an awesome band that flew under the radar. There you go with this one. There's so many, their song Moments in Love is a great song and goes well beyond the guy having an orgasm in the song, but it's a powerful song and a great band to say the least. Definitely a band that flew under the radar in the 80s and 90s, but gets their due in some other aspects. Question 3. Seth, your thoughts on the Boston Bruins being shown the exit doors quickly in five games against the Bolts? You know, they went up against a Tampa Bay team that honestly has a very small window right now to win Lord Stanley's Cup. As in, if they don't do it this season, and they're going up against the Islanders, so they have a good chance of doing it, making the finals, it'll be interesting to see how the Tampa Bay Lightning regroups to make another run. As for Boston, they honestly looked like shit in this series, and perhaps it's time the, the Bruins start to reevaluate a few things for next season. The issues go well beyond Tuka Rask going home for a family emergency where it comes to the Bruins, Although Mike Milbury of NBC, the shoe-tossing, kid-beating prick, would say otherwise. Next. Seth, if the new NHL season opens up on December the 1st, how do you feel about the idea of an 82-game regular season? Well, it's going to be an uphill climb to say the least. Look, we get our share of back-to-back games in in a normal season. 
But you have to take in mind that the off-season this year is just, it's going to be condensed. Teams that have already been eliminated from the postseason have a bit of a breather, but it's still going to be a grinder of an off-season as well as the regular season. You'll be getting a lot of back-to-back games and possibly even a few games where teams are playing three nights in a row on the road or they're hosting three games at home three nights in a row. I guess my idea of beginning another condensed half season starting in January won't work for dumbass Gary Bettman at all. Question 5. Seth, why do you hate Biden as much as you do Trump? Well, it's very simple. Do your research on both candidates and not what the media tells you. If you use simple fucking logic, neither candidate is worth praising. Look, really people, get your heads out of your fucking asses. Neither candidate is the savior of this country or anything of the sort. Biden has a checkered past, so does Trump. Both men are linked to corruption. Both men have ties to the so-called deep state. This isn't rocket science, folks. Even Trump admitted in his campaign during the 2016 election he wasn't without fault that he had done things that were wrong. I'm no saint, but I don't give two shits about people who try to pass off their damn candidate as a saint when they're equally bad. Question 6. Seth, any thoughts on the markets near or above the levels pre-COVID? Well, you should have taken the time to buy when the prices were lower when the markets steeply dropped back in February and March. As fears subsided, the Fed pumped money into the stock market by printing more money and people invested again as they felt it was safe. As I said on Blog Talk, the markets go in these wild mood swings, all based on news reports, what the government is doing, what the president's doing, economic numbers, etc. It's all a gamble or crapshoot. I just personally don't do it and prefer to stay to either poker, slides, or 21 when it comes to gambling. I'm just saying. It took a swing for two days because it went on such a big run the last few months. The market had to take a step back and breathe. Question 7. Seth, can't thank you enough for being smart where it comes to whether or not there was an upgrade to a Windows 11. No worries, sir. I know that things appear too good to be true, but if they're not announcing it from Microsoft, Windows doesn't have a Windows 11 upgrade. Same thing with Apple and the iOS updates. It's best to get it straight from the company itself and not just the rumor mill, because you get it from the rumor mill, it could be a scam. Um, I don't know what's worse. The scam site saying that there's going to be a Windows 11 upgrade coming of, say, end of the month, or those annoying as hell virus alerts that say that they're from Microsoft. FYI, two virus pro- antivirus programs keep those fake virus alerts blocked, to my knowledge, PCmatic and Norton. Question 8 says, is it true that some film directors prefer to, prefer to film in Canada or low-tax states? Yeah, very true. Canada is a very high-tax state, as is New York. But if you can film in Canada or in Texas, Virginia, Pennsylvania, etc., those states are lower where it comes to taxes down the board, so it helps cut down a bit on the production costs. Let's say you're shooting a film in California for a budget around $45 million. 
in those aforementioned states or in the providence of Canada, it might drop to around $35 million, which is a saving of $10 million. And it'll help you out if you have to do reshoots because it'll be money from that $10 million you saved you can put towards your reshoots. Whereas New York and California, $45 plus $10 million in reshoots, $55 million. Question 9, Sith. Thoughts on he was the better wrestler in the late 80s? Hogan or Flair? Dude, you gotta be smoking other than nicotine or weed to tell me that Hogan was better. Look, entertainment-wise, Hogan wins hands down. But in the ring, Flair was the better wrestler hands down. There's a very sharp contrast between what the NWA and WCW did in the late 80s and what the WWF did in the same time period. The NWA WCW wasn't cartoonish yet. It still had shows on that were entertaining but were more focused with action and the ring as well as the stories, a lot like AEW is today, whereas WWF was already breaking into that cartoonish side of things. Hogan was already breaking into the entertainment end, and WWF really got into it because, as Vince McMahon has said time and again, Ted Turner and Jim Crockett were both in the wrestling business, and Vince himself saw WWF and sees WWE as sports entertainment. Last question, Seth. Any thoughts on the article from The Atlantic where President Trump allegedly disparaged World War War I vets as well as deceased U.S. Senator John McCain? Yep. It's a story that if it had major teeth, such as actual quotes from people that were there and not anonymous sources, it would sink Trump's re-election. Oh, and note how the left's love and the media's love affair with John Bolton is now officially off because he doesn't remember that being said in the meeting and he was there. So, oh, that was quick. There's a virtual free event with The Atlantic and Hillary Clinton as well later on this month as well. Yes, he disparaged Senator McCain where he came to his status as a POW, saying he was captured. My type of guys are the guys that weren't captured. But this seems to me like a hit piece based on that statement, trying to get after the military and veterans vote. I'm not supporting what he said about the late senator at all, as I think he also indirectly said it about all POWs, and I know several POWs. And that hurt me what he had said. But saying this article out right now is really convenient given the timing. Rant one. Okay, though, watch what we say, not as we do crowd strikes again. In case you've been living under a rock or didn't see it online, Philadelphia's mayor was, mayor was caught in a Maryland restaurant, dining in after telling restaurants in Philly, Philly, no dine-in service. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is also in hot water as well, because while not wearing her mask properly, went into a closed salon with a private appointment to get her hair done. Not to mention also, my governor, Governor Klansman, yeah, I'll never get over that, who went to the oceanfront in Virginia Beach without his mask, but it was in the glove compartment of his car, how quaint, to talk about people about the virus and how to stay safe. So why is this all upsetting to some people? Because 
of the people in power doing the opposite of what they've been saying to do during this virus. Take in mind, folks, if you aren't wearing a mask in public, you're an inconsiderate dickhead. And if you don't follow what the medical experts that the left tell you to support do, you're a case of someone who wants to continue to spread. Don't look now, but you're starting to see a trend here, and people are starting not to buy into the fear anymore. You have gym owners that are saying, look, as long as you wear the mask and practice distancing, come on in and work out. You have restaurants that are gradually opening, like Texas Roadhouse, Golden Corral, Applebee's, where you call ahead for your seat and you are socially distant, and yeah, it helps if you wear a mask. Kudos to places like Chick-fil-A, Hardee's, McDonald's, Wendy's, who are still using carry-out, drive-through, and delivery because they feel that deep down, it's too soon. Cheers also to Domino's for having the car side delivery where you pop open your trunk and you wave off the guy who puts your pizza in your trunk. You see, it's called letting the companies and individual businesses decide when the time is right to open up to a percentage or fully and not wait it out so much later on. Did you really think the mayors in San Francisco, Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, LA, etc. would leave it up to the business owners, franchise owners, or companies to figure out when to reopen? No, because they were too busy screaming at the top of their lungs, Orange Man Bad must stay closed until after November 3rd and maybe we can talk this shit over. How do I know this is all about the election? You can credit AOC for that shit. Because she took down a tweet after 22,000 retweets saying that states and cities needed, that they needed to stay shut down until after the election because if the economy improved, Trump would get reelected. And FYI, Facebook flags this info as fake because they know well, they know well that, you know, the internet is forever. It gives you a digital trade that is forever. Hell, a lot of people make remarks on Twitter, and then when they get in the public eye, the past comes comes back to bite them right in the ass. Let me preface this in context, context for you all. When I go for a walk, which I try to do a few days a week, if I'm going into a building, I take my mask with me. Even if I don't know if I'm actually going into a business or not, I carry it just in case. When I go out on errands where I know I'll be going into other buildings or I might be in contact with other people, I take my mask. Even if it's just to the park, I carry my mask just in case. Do I bully or shame others who don't practice it? No. Why? Because some people I know family-wise can't wear a mask because of health issues and it's something that the mask police doesn't quite understand because health issues are no, you wear the mask or else you're a risk-carrying asshole. Breaks down like this. You can be cautious and wear the mask. You can be sympathetic to those with health issues who can't wear a mask and just hope they don't get this fucking COVID shit. Just that on either side, mask or no mask, stop being a fucking dick about it. Use common sense and stop generalizing people who disagree with you on mask or not to mask, calling them a fucking Karen or Chad for Christ's sake. I admit the drama kings and queens are a bit much, but using that tagline for everyone, including those who aren't 
doing the dramatic bullshit is a bit too much. Some people have common sense as well as manners. Use them for crying out loud and go to the politicians. Practice what you preach. And there's your first memo. Okay, so the unemployment rate dropped this week to 8.4% in the month of August. And there's a two-way fold of looking at this. Yes, service industry, hospitality, and blue-collar jobs are coming back to the economy and hiring people. So that is a good thing. However, the rate also had a steep drop for another reason. And now you know why Dems were pushing in a way hard for that 600 a month a week for the rest of the year in the Heroes Act. When you aren't collecting unemployment and you're still out looking for a job, you don't get counted in the unemployment rate per se, and therefore it dropped a bit more because at the end of July, that 600 a week benefit, it went away. So why did the market crater and then crawl back the other day? Well, this job support did help at first, but there were other factors involved. As I mentioned before, when the market went to below November 2016 levels because of COVID, after that, you had a major shot in the arm, and the S&P and NASDAQ went into record territory after making COVID losses. And the Dow also made up the COVID losses as well. And so the market needed to scale back for a few days. It had to correct itself. It had to adjust. You also had the issue that social media companies are under scrutiny for censorship, and you've got them panicking as, as well as they try to block certain content they don't agree with. Couple that with the major huge rally and after the plunge, and you get a market that had to take a step back. Usually a jobs report like this rallies the market, but not the other day. Now, was this report bad for Biden and company? Yes, as they wanted people to stay home through at least November the 3rd. The panic from Biden was mainly, I didn't want people going back to work at all. This was not a part of the plan I had. It was to keep you all home, all home, dependent on the government, and in fear, then maybe start going back to work post-election. He's projecting his anger out on the jobs report on the people who didn't follow what he wanted to happen. He was going to be angry with the port regardless and lash out, but the lower rate and over a million people going back to work enraged him as he had to come out against it. This is no longer about the safety of the people, as a lot of people aren't in fear as much anymore. This is about the election. Okay? VP Biden let that cat out of the bag yesterday big time, indirectly lashing out at people who went back to work, yet again showing that he wanted everyone to stay home and live off the emergency unemployment benefit. A lot of places require employees in the public to wear a mask. If you're getting something drive-up-wise, you wear a mask when you're orders being delivered to the car side, and the employees are wearing masks as well. It was bad news for Trump as well, okay? Because while he's out here uh, touting the new rate, rightfully so, you still have the spread of the virus in some areas, and you need to still have employee and employer protections in place with this new stimulus package, if one is ever passed. You still have steep differences in women and minorities where, where people are unemployed. A part of this are people are wanting to stay home because they're an at-risk group, and although jobs are out there, they would rather stay home. The other part, though, are companies that have furloughed employees or have shut down completely. 
completely. Another part is that people still fear the virus and will stay home until it's totally clear or stuck in a financial bind where they have to go find work. Yes, 8.4% beats 14.2%, but when you take all those factors and dig in the report, ain't as rosy as it seems, and that's your memo. And there we go, another episode of Sith's Basement is in the can. We have so much more for you here at True Radio Network across Anchor, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Facebook, etc. Tomorrow night, 7 p.m., Sports on the Hill Podcast, CP3, Robbie G, Paul the Boxing Guy, Anna K, Dijanae Bland, and the crew. They have all your DC sports without the politics, everything caps, Nats, Wizards, Mystics, DC United, Washington football team related. It's all covered there. Monday nights at 7 p.m. Sports on the Hill podcast. Coming soon on Tuesday nights, we have the reboot of True Talk, which will be at 8 p.m. East, where Nakia Miller and I will be discussing politics and all things current, event-wise, surrounding politics. Wednesday nights around 9, 9.30 p.m., my friends over at the Starting 5 podcast on Wednesday nights, they have great discussions on Zoom. And I do make appearances there from time to time, and will again soon. So join the Mayor Dan Dinkins, TJ Guitar, and the gang over there. Thursday nights, Big Hurt will be back soon with Hurt's House at 8 p.m., where he opines about the Washington football team games, news and notes, politics, wrestling, pop culture, etc., Sunday afternoons as well as during the week you can catch on YouTube 151 and CP3 they have new artists on At The Bar Radio which covers the indie music scene in the DC area and beyond like no one else Sunday mornings at 10pm we drop the No Spots podcast on you, where myself, Dan the Sith along with DC's People's Champ and our tag team partner Donnie Wrestling We have all your pro wrestling news and recaps that you need. This coming Sunday morning, we're recap. You'll hear the recap of AEW All Out. Champ has your latest from New Japan Pro Wrestling. We recap the week that was in pro wrestling, as well as any news and notes. And 6 p.m. You know where I'll be, here in the basement having countdowns. Shenanigans, Q&A, and rants as your humble correspondent. And that's the shows that we have for you here, not only on True Radio Network, but some of our friends as well, where it comes to At The Bar Radio and Starting Five Pod. Y'all have a great week. Take care. Peace out. And I'll see you next Sunday night. And a very happy tomorrow to you.